Section 41 of Man and Wife. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Oxenhandler. Man and Wife by Wilkie Collins. Seventh Scene. Chapter the Thirty-Sixth. The Truth at Last. Two days after the marriage, on Wednesday, the ninth of September, a packet of letters received at Windygates was forwarded by Lady Lundy's steward to Ham Farm. With one exception, the letters were all addressed either to Sir Patrick or to his sister-in-law. The one exception was directed to Arnold Brinkworth, Esquire, care of Lady Lundy, Windygates House, Perthshire, and the envelope was specially protected by a seal. Noticing that the postmark was Glasgow, Sir Patrick, to whom the letter had been delivered, looked with a certain distrust at the handwriting on the address. It was not known to him, but it was obviously the handwriting of a woman. Lady Lundy was sitting opposite to him at the table. He said carelessly, A letter for Arnold, and pushed it across to her. Her ladyship took up the letter and dropped it the instant she looked at the handwriting, as if it had burned her fingers. The person again, exclaimed Lady Lundy the person presuming to address Arnold Brinkworth at my house. "'Miss Sylvester?' asked Sir Patrick. "'No,' said her ladyship, shutting her teeth with a snap. "'The person may insult me by addressing a letter to my care, but the person's name shall not pollute my lips, not even in your house, Sir Patrick, not even to please you.' Sir Patrick was sufficiently answered. After all that had happened, after her farewell letter to Blanche, here was Miss Sylvester writing to Blanche's husband, of her own accord. It was unaccountable, to say the least of it. He took the letter back and looked at it again. Lady Lundy's steward was a methodical man. He had endorsed each letter received at Windygates with the date of its delivery. The letter addressed to Arnold had been delivered on Monday, the 7th of September, on Arnold's wedding day. What did it mean? It was pure waste of time to inquire. Sir Patrick rose to lock the letter up in one of the drawers at the writing-table behind him. Lady Lundy interfered in the interest of morality. Sir Patrick. Yes. Don't you consider it your duty to open that letter? My dear lady, what can you possibly be thinking of? The most virtuous of living women had her answers ready on the spot. I am thinking, said Lady Lundy, of Arnold's moral welfare. Sir Patrick smiled on the long list of those respectable disguises under which we assert our own importance or gratify our own love of meddling in our neighbor's affairs a moral regard for the welfare of others figures in the foremost place and stands deservedly as number one we shall probably hear from arnold in a day or two said sir patrick locking the letter up in the drawer he shall have it as soon as i know where to send it to him the next morning brought news of the bride and bridegroom they reported themselves to be too supremely happy to care where they lived so long as they lived together. Every question except the question of love was left in the competent hands of their courier. This sensible and trustworthy man had decided that Paris was not to be thought of as a place of residence by any sane human being in the month of September. He had arranged that they were to leave for Baden on their way to Switzerland on the 10th. Letters were accordingly to be addressed to that place. Until further notice, if the courier liked Baden, they would probably stay there for some time. If the courier took a fancy for the mountains, they would in that case go on to Switzerland. 
In the meanwhile, nothing mattered to Arnold but Blanche, and nothing mattered to Blanche but Arnold. Sir Patrick redirected Anne Sylvester's letter to Arnold at the Poste Restante, Baden. A second letter, which had arrived that morning, addressed to Arnold in a legal handwriting and bearing the postmark of Edinburgh, was forwarded in the same way and at the same time. Two days later, Ham Farm was deserted by the guests. Lady Lundy had gone back to Windygates. The rest had separated in their different directions. Sir Patrick, who also contemplated returning to Scotland, remained behind for a week, a solitary prisoner in his own country house. Accumulated arrears of business with which it was impossible for his steward to deal single-handed obliged him to remain at his estates in Kent for that time. To a man without a taste for partridge shooting, the ordeal was a trying one. Sir Patrick got through the day with the help of his business and his books. In the evening the rector of a neighboring parish drove over to dinner, and engaged his host at the noble but obsolete game of piquet. They arranged to meet at each other's houses on alternate days. The rector was an admirable player, and Sir Patrick, though a born Presbyterian, blessed the Church of England from the bottom of his heart. Three more days passed. Business at Ham Farm began to draw to an end. The time for Sir Patrick's journey to Scotland came nearer. The two partners at Piquet agreed to meet for a final game, on the next night, at the rector's house. But let us take comfort in remembering it. Our superiors in church and state are as completely at the mercy of circumstances as the humblest and the poorest of us. That last game of piquet between the baronet and the parson was never to be played. On the afternoon of the fourth day, Sir Patrick came in from a drive and found a letter from Arnold waiting for him, which had been delivered by the second post. Judged by externals only, it was a letter of an unusually perplexing, possibly also of an unusually interesting kind. Arnold was one of the last persons in the world whom any of his friends would have suspected of being a lengthy correspondent. Here, nevertheless, was a letter from him, of three times the customary bulk and weight, and apparently of more than common importance, in a matter of news, besides. At the top of the envelope was marked immediate, and at one side, also underlined, was the ominous word private. Nothing wrong, I hope, thought Sir Patrick. He opened the envelope. Two enclosures fell out on the table. He looked at them for a moment. There were the two letters which he had forwarded to Baden. The third letter remaining in his hand and occupying a double sheet was from Arnold himself. Sir Patrick read Arnold's letter first. It was dated Baden, and it began as follows. My dear Sir Patrick, don't be alarmed if you can possibly help it. I'm in a terrible mess. Sir Patrick looked up for a moment from the letter. Given a young man who dates from Baden, and declares himself to be in a terrible mess, as representing the circumstances of the case, what is the interpretation to be placed on them? Sir Patrick drew the inevitable conclusion. Arnold had been gambling. He shook his head, and went on with the letter. I must say, dreadful as it is, that I am not to blame, nor she either, poor thing. Sir Patrick paused again. She? Blanche had apparently been gambling, too. Nothing was wanting to complete the picture but an announcement in the next sentence, presenting the courier as carried away in his turn by the insatiate passion for play. Sir Patrick resumed. You cannot, I am sure, expect me to have known the law. And as for poor Miss Sylvester— 
Miss Sylvester? What had Miss Sylvester to do with it? And what could be the meaning of the reference to the law? Sir Patrick had read the letter thus far, standing up. A vague distrust stole over him at the appearance of Miss Sylvester's name in connection with the lines which had preceded it. He felt nothing approaching to a clear prevision of what was to come. Some indescribable influence was at work in him, which shook his nerves and made him feel the infirmities of his age, as it seemed, on a sudden. It went no further than that. He was obliged to sit down. He was obliged to wait a moment before he went on. The letter proceeded in these words. And as for poor Miss Sylvester, though she felt, as she reminds me, some misgivings still, she never could have foreseen, being no lawyer either, how it was to end. I hardly know the best way to break it to you. I can't and won't believe it myself, but even if it should be true, I am quite sure you will find a way out of it for us. I will stick at nothing, and Miss Sylvester, as you will see by her letter, will stick at nothing either, to set things right, of course. I have not said one word to my darling Blanche, who is quite happy and suspects nothing. All this, dear Sir Patrick, is very badly written, I am afraid, but it is meant to prepare you and to put the best side on matters at starting. However, the truth must be told, and shame on the Scotch law is what I say. This it is, in short, Geoffrey Delmayen is even a greater scoundrel than you think him and I bitterly repent, as things have turned out, having held my tongue that night when you and I had our private talk at Ham Farm. You will think I am mixing two things up together, but I am not. Please, to keep this about Geoffrey in your mind, and piece it together with what I have next to say. The worst is still to come. Miss Sylvester's letter, enclosed, tells me this terrible thing. You must know that I went to her privately as Geoffrey's messenger on the day of the lawn-party at Windygates. Well, how it could have happened, heaven only knows, but there is reason to fear that I married her, without being aware of it myself, in August last, at the Craig Fernie Inn. The letter dropped from Sir Patrick's hand. He sank back in the chair, stunned for the moment under the shock that had fallen on him. He rallied and rose, bewildered to his feet. He took a turn in the room. He stopped and summoned his will, and steadied himself by main force. He picked up the letter and read the last sentence again. His face flushed. He was on the point of yielding himself to a useless outburst of anger against Arnold, when his better sense checked him at the last moment. One fool in the family is enough, he said. My business in this dreadful emergency is to keep my head clear for Blanche's sake. He waited once more to make sure of his own composure, and turned again to the letter to see what the writer had to say for himself in the way of explanation and excuse. Arnold had plenty to say. With the drawback of not knowing how to say it, it was hard to decide which quality in his letter was most marked, the total absence of arrangement or the total absence of reserve. Without beginning, middle, or end, he told the story of his fatal connection with the troubles of Anne Sylvester. From the memorable day when Geoffrey Delmayne sent him to Craig Fernie, to the equally memorable night when Sir Patrick had tried vainly to make him open his lips at Ham Farm. I own I have behaved like a fool, the letter concluded, in keeping Geoffrey Delmayne's secret for him, as things have turned out, but how could I tell upon him without compromising Miss Sylvester? 
read her letter and you will see what she says and how generously she releases me it's no use saying i am sorry i wasn't more cautious the mischief is done i'll stick at nothing as i have said before to undo it only tell me what is the first step i am to take and as long as it don't part me from blanche rely on my taking it waiting to hear from you i remain dear sir patrick yours in great perplexity arnold brinkworth sir patrick folded the letter and looked at the two enclosures lying on the table his eye was hard his brow was frowning as he put his hand to take up anne's letter the letter from arnold's agent in edinburgh lay nearer to him as it happened he took that first it was short enough and clearly enough written to invite a reading before he put it down again the lawyer reported that he had made the necessary inquiries at glasgow with the result and had been traced to the Sheepshead Hotel. She had lain there utterly helpless, from illness, until the beginning of September. She had been advertised, without result, in the Glasgow newspapers. On the 5th of September she had sufficiently recovered to be able to leave the hotel. She had been seen at the railway station on the same day, but from that point all trace of her had been lost once more. The lawyer had accordingly stopped the proceedings and now waited further instructions from his client. This letter was not without its effect in encouraging Sir Patrick to suspend the harsh and hasty judgment of Anne which any man placed in his present situation must have been inclined to form. Her illness claimed its small share of sympathy. Her friendless position, so plainly and so sadly revealed by the advertising in the newspapers, pleaded for merciful construction of faults committed, if faults there were. Bravely, but not angrily, Sir Patrick opened her letter, the letter that cast a doubt on his niece's marriage. Thus Anne Sylvester wrote, Glasgow, September 5th. Dear Mr. Brinkworth, Nearly three weeks since I attempted to write to you from this place. I was seized by sudden illness while I was engaged over my letter, and from that time to this I have laid helpless in bed very near as they tell me to death i was strong enough to be dressed and to sit up for a little while yesterday and the day before to-day i have made a better advance toward recovery i can hold my pen and control my thoughts the first use to which i put this improvement is to write these lines i am going so far as i know to surprise possibly to alarm you there is no escaping from it for you or for me, it must be done. Thinking of how best to introduce what I am now obliged to say, I can find no better way than this. I must ask you to take your memory back to a day which we have both bitter reason to regret, the day when Geoffrey Delmayen sent you to see me at the inn at Craig Fernie. You may possibly not remember. It unhappily produced no impression upon you at the time, that I felt and expressed, more than once on that occasion, a very great dislike to your passing me off on the people of the inn as your wife. It was necessary to my being permitted to remain at Craig Fernie that you should do so. I knew this, but still I shrank from it. It was impossible for me to contradict you without involving you in the painful consequences and running the risk of making a scandal which might find its way to Blanche's ears. I knew this also, but still my conscience reproached me. 
It was a vague feeling. I was quite unaware of the actual danger in which you were placing yourself, or I would have spoken out, no matter what came of it. I had what is called a presentiment, that you were not acting discreetly, nothing more. As I love and honor my mother's memory, and I trust in the mercy of God, this is the truth. You left the inn the next morning, and we have not met since. A few days after you went away, my anxieties grew more than I could bear alone. I went secretly to Windygates and had an interview with Blanche. She was absent for a few minutes from the room in which we had met. In that interval I saw Geoffrey Dalmayan for the first time since I had left him at Lady Lundy's lawn party. He treated me as if I was a stranger. He told me that he had found out all that had passed between us at the inn. He said he had taken a lawyer's opinion. Oh, Mr. Brinkworth, how can I break it to you? How can I write the words which repeat what he said to me next? It must be done, cruel as it is, it must be done. He refused to my face to marry me. He said I was married already. He said I was your wife. Now you know why I have referred you to what I felt and confessed to feeling when we were together at Craig Fernie. If you think hard thoughts and say hard words of me, I can claim no right to blame you. I am innocent, and yet it is my fault. My head swims, and the foolish tears are rising in spite of me. I must leave off and rest a little. I have been sitting at the window and watching the people in the street as they go by. They are all strangers, but somehow the sight of them seems to rest my mind. The hum of the great city gives me heart and helps me to go on. I cannot trust myself to write of the man who has betrayed us both. Disgraced and broken as I am, there is something still left in me which lifts me above him. If he came repentant at this moment and offered me all that rank and wealth and worldly consideration can give, I would rather be what I am now than be his wife. Let me speak of you, and, for Blanche's sake, let me speak of myself. I ought, no doubt, to have waited to see you at Windygates, and to have told you at once of what had happened, but I was weak and ill, and the shock of hearing what I heard fell so heavily on me that I fainted. After I came to myself I was so horrified when I thought of you and Blanche that a sort of madness possessed me. I had but one idea, the idea of running away and hiding myself. My mind got clearer and quieter on the way to this place, and— Arrived here, I did what I hoped and believed was the best thing I could do. I consulted two lawyers. They differed in opinion as to whether we were married or not, according to the law which decides on such things in Scotland. The first said yes, the second said no, but advised me to write immediately and tell you the position in which you stood. I attempted to write the same day and fell ill, as you know. Thank God the delay that has happened is of no consequence. I asked Blanche at Windygates when you were to be married, and she told me not until the end of autumn. It is only the 5th of September now. You have plenty of time before you. For all our sakes, make good use of it. What are you to do? Go at once to Sir Patrick Lundy, and show him this letter. Follow his advice, no matter how it may affect me. I should ill-requite your kindness. I should be false, indeed, to the love I bear to Blanche, if I hesitated to brave any exposure that may now be necessary in your interests and in hers. You have been all that is generous, all that is delicate, 
and that is kind in this matter. You have kept my disgraceful secret, I am quite sure of it, with the fidelity of an honorable man who has had a woman's reputation placed in his charge. I release you, with my whole heart, dear Mr. Brinkworth, from your pledge, I entreat you, on my knees, to consider yourself free to reveal the truth. I will make any acknowledgment on my side that is needful under the circumstances, no matter how public it may be. Release yourself at any price, and then, and not till then, give back your regard to the miserable woman who has laden you with the burden of her sorrow and darkened your life for a moment with the shadow of her shame. Pray don't think there is any painful sacrifice involved in this. The quieting of my own mind is involved in it, and that is all. What has life left for me? Nothing but the barren necessity of living. When I think of the future now, my mind passes over the years that may be left to me in this world. Sometimes I dare to hope that the divine mercy of Christ, which once pleaded on earth for a woman like me, may plead, when death has taken me, for my spirit in heaven. Sometimes I dare to hope that I may see my mother, and Blanche's mother, in the better world. Their hearts were bound together as the hearts of sisters while they were here, and they left to their children the legacy of their love. Oh, help me to say, if we meet again, that not in vain I promised to be a sister to Blanche. The debt I owed to her is the hereditary debt of my mother's gratitude, and what am I now? An obstacle in the way of the happiness of her life. Sacrifice me to that happiness for God's sake. It is the one thing I have left to live for. Again and again I say it. I care nothing for myself. I have no right to be considered. I have no wish to be considered. Tell the whole truth about me, and call me to bear witness to it as publicly as you please. I have waited a little, once more, trying to think, before I close my letter, what there may be still left to write. I cannot think of anything left but the duty of informing you how you may find me if you wish to write, or if it is thought necessary that we should meet again, one word before I tell you this. It is impossible for me to guess what you will do, or what you will be advised to do by others, when you get my letter. I do not even know that you may not already have heard of what your position is from Geoffrey Damayan himself in this event, or in the event of your thinking it desirable to take Blanche into your confidence. I venture to suggest that you should appoint some person whom you can trust to see me on your behalf, or, if you cannot do this, that you should see me in the presence of a third person. The man who has not hesitated to betray us both will not hesitate to misrepresent us in the vilest way if he can do it in the future. For your own sake, let us be careful to give lying tongues no opportunity of assailing your place in Blanche's estimation. Don't act so as to risk putting yourself in a false position again. Don't let it be possible that a feeling unworthy of her should be roused in the loving and generous nature of your future wife. This written I may now tell you how to communicate with me after I have left this place. You will find on the slip of paper enclosed the name and address of the second of the two lawyers whom I consulted in Glasgow. It is arranged between us that I am to inform him, by letter, of the next place to which I remove, and that he is to communicate the information either to you or to Sir Patrick Lundy. On your applying for it personally or by writing, I don't yet know myself where I may find refuge. Nothing is certain but that I cannot, in my present state of weakness, travel far. 
if you wonder why i move at all until i am stronger i can only give a reason which may appear fanciful and overstrained i have been informed that i was advertised in the glasgow newspapers during the time when i lay at the hotel a stranger at the point of death trouble has perhaps made me morbidly suspicious i am afraid of what may happen if i stay here after my place of residence has been made publicly known so as soon as i can move i go away in secret it will be enough for me if i can find rest and peace in some quiet place in the country round glasgow you need feel no anxiety about my means of living i have money enough for all that i need and if i get well again i know how to earn my bread i send no message to blanche i dare not till this is over wait till she is your happy wife and then give her a kiss and say it comes from anne try and forgive me dear mr brinkworth i have said all yours gratefully anne sylvester sir patrick put the letter down with unfeigned respect for the woman who had written it something of the personal influence which anne exercised more or less over all the men with whom she came in contact seemed to communicate itself to the old lawyer through the medium of her letter his thoughts perversely wandered away from the serious and pressing question of his niece's position into a region of purely speculative inquiry relating to anne what infatuation he asked himself had placed that noble creature at the mercy of such a man as geoffrey delmayne we have all at one time or another in our lives been perplexed as sir patrick was perplexed now if we know anything by experience we know that women cast themselves away impulsively on unworthy men and that men ruin themselves headlong for unworthy women we have the institution of divorce actually among us existing mainly because the two sexes are perpetually placing themselves in these anomalous relations towards one another and yet at every fresh instance which comes before us we persist in being astonished to find that the man and the woman have not chosen each other on rational and producible grounds we expect human passion to act on logical principles and human fallibility with love for its guide to be above all danger of making a mistake ask the wisest among anne sylvester's sex what they saw to rationally justify them in choosing the men to whom they have given their hearts and their lives and you will be putting a question to those wise women which they never once thought of putting to themselves nay more still look into your own experience and say frankly could you justify your own excellent choice at the time when you irrevocably made it could you have put your reason on paper when you first owned to yourself that you loved him and would the reasons have borne critical inspection if you had sir patrick gave it up in despair the interests of his niece were at stake he wisely determined to rouse his mind by occupying himself with the practical necessities of the moment it was essential to send an apology to the rector in the first place so as to leave the evening at his disposal for considering what preliminary course of conduct he should advise arnold to pursue after writing a few lines of apology to his partner at piquet assigning family business as the excuse for breaking his engagement sir patrick rang the bell the faithful duncan appeared and saw at once in his master's face that something had happened send a man with this to the rectory said sir patrick i can't dine out to-day i must have a chop at home i am afraid sir patrick if i may be excused for remarking it you have had some bad news 
the worst possible news duncan i can't tell you about it now wait within hearing of the bell in the meantime let nobody interrupt me if the steward himself comes i can't see him after thinking it over carefully sir patrick decided that there was no alternative but to send a message to arnold and blanche summoning them back to england in the first place the necessity of questioning arnold in the minutest detail as to everything that happened between anne sylvester and himself at the craig fernie inn was the first and foremost necessity of the case at the same time it appeared to be desirable for blanche's sake to keep her in ignorance for the present at least of what had happened sir patrick met this difficulty with characteristic ingenuity and readiness of resource he wrote a telegram to Arnold, expressed in the following terms. Your letter and enclosure received. Return to Ham Farm as soon as you conveniently can. Keep the thing still a secret from Blanche. Tell her, as the reason for coming back, that the lost trace of Anne Sylvester has been recovered, and that there may be reasons for her returning to England before anything further can be done. Duncan, having been dispatched to the station with the message, Duncan's master proceeded to calculate the question of time. Arnold would in all probability receive the telegram at Baden on the next day, September the 17th. In three days more he and Blanche might be expected to reach Ham Farm. During the interval thus placed at his disposal, Sir Patrick would have ample time in which to recover himself and to see his way to acting for the best in the alarming emergency that now confronted him. On the 19th, Sir Patrick received a telegram informing him that he might expect to see the young couple late in the evening on the 20th. Late in the evening, the sound of carriage wheels was audible on the drive, and Sir Patrick, opening the door of his room, heard the familiar voices in the hall. "'Well,' cried Blanche, catching sight of him at the door, "'is Anne found?' "'Not just yet, my dear.' "'Is there news of her?' "'Yes.' Am I in time to be of use? In excellent time. You shall hear all about it tomorrow. Go and take off your traveling things and come down again to supper as soon as you can. Blanche kissed him and went upstairs. She had, as her uncle thought in the glimpse he had caught of her, been improved by her marriage. It had quieted and steadied her. There were graces in her look and manner which Sir Patrick had not noticed before. Arnold, on his side, appeared to less advantage. He was restless and anxious. His position with Miss Sylvester seemed to be preying on his mind. As soon as his young wife's back was turned, he appealed to Sir Patrick in an eager whisper. "'I hardly dare ask you what I have got it on my mind to say,' he began. "'I must bear it if you are angry with me, Sir Patrick, but only tell me one thing. Is there a way out of it for us? Have you thought of that?' "'I cannot trust myself to speak of it clearly and composedly to-night,' said Sir Patrick. "'Be satisfied if I tell you that I have thought it all out, and wait for the rest till to-morrow.' Other persons concerned in the coming drama had had past difficulties to think out, and future movements to consider, during the interval occupied by Arnold and Blanche on their return journey to England. Between the 17th and the 20th of September, Geoffrey Delmayan, had left Swanhaven on the way to his new training quarters, in the neighborhood in which the foot-race at Fulham was to be run. Between the same dates, also, Captain Newenden had taken the opportunity, while passing through London on his way south, to consult his solicitors. 
the object of the conference was to find means of discovering an anonymous letter-writer in scotland who had presumed to cause serious annoyance to mrs glenarm thus by ones and twos converging from widely distant quarters they were now beginning to draw together in the near neighbourhood of the great city which was soon destined to assemble them all for the first and the last time in this world face to face end of section forty one